This morning we're going to be in the book of Haggai. Haggai, that's H-A-G-G-A-I. If you don't know where that book is, you're probably not alone in this room. It's at the very, almost at the very end of the Old Testament. So if you will, uh, if you go to the book of Matthew, which is the beginning of the New Testament, and hit rewind for two books, you'll come to that third to the last book in the Old Testament, and that is the book of Haggai. So this morning, as we look at this book, uh, I was thinking about it this week, and you know, there are really two kinds of doctor's visits that you can go to. Is that right? Two kinds. One is kind of your routine checkup. You're just going in to make sure everything's okay. Uh, and the other one is where you go to the doctor because there's a problem. You have an ailment or a sickness and you need, you need help with something that's wrong. Uh, and so I have to ask you, which one of those do you prefer, the first or the second? Well, we... Probably all of us would say the first, uh, or a lot of us might say neither, right? We just don't like to go to the doctor at all. Uh, And I've been told, okay, I'm going to turn 40 this year. I've I've been told that as you get older, the lines between those two kind of get blurred. In fact, you never go to the doctor without anything being wrong. So uh, I'm looking forward to that. But anytime you go to the doctor, especially if you have a problem, you want them to give you a diagnosis and then a treatment. Right? You want them to tell you, hey, here's what's wrong with you, and here's how to fix it. And so uh, this morning, as we look at the book of Haggai, or Haggai, as our British brothers and sisters say, uh, it reads a little bit like notes from a doctor's checkup. Uh, and it's the, the second kind of checkup, where there's something wrong, it's being diagnosed, and now here's what you need to do about it. You know, um, God's people in the book of Haggai have returned from exile. We're going to talk about the history of that in just a little bit. So they've come back after being sent away on exile. They've returned after 70 years, but they're struggling. They're back in the promised land. They came back with high hopes, um, but they have problems. They have some ailments. Life after exile is not turning out how they hoped it would. So Haggai, this book, this little book, it's only two chapters long. It's the second shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, The other one was Obadiah. Um, This book challenges them and points them in the right direction. I think as we look at it this morning, we'll see that it challenges us as well and points us in the right direction. And, And Haggai tells them that here's your diagnosis. There's a problem with your worship. There's a problem with your worship. Your relationship with God and the way you're pursuing him. And that is the key, not only to your current existence, but also to your future hopes. The way you worship God, the way you view God. So Haggai zeroes in on worship, and he focuses on how they are worshiping, or as we're going to see, as they're not worshiping, as the case may be. As the next, uh, as we kind of, over the next two or three weeks, wrap up the Minor Prophets, this is actually really timely, because we want to also be focusing in on worship. You know, worship is the starting point for all that we do as a church and all that we do as Christians. God is raising us up to be worshipers for him for all eternity. Um, If you think about a compass, okay, on a compass you have four points, north, south, east, and west. Um, And if you think about what that looks like here at Trinity Church or at any church, really true north is worship. Your focus on God, your relationship with him. And out of that flow all the other ministries in the church, your discipleship ministry, your missional ministries, your, your, the community and fellowship you have with one another. But if your worship, if your true north is misplaced, if you don't have an accurate view of God, a healthy relationship with him, all the other things are going to be off course. They're going to struggle. 
That's, that's why it's so important as the Old Testament ends, preparing God's people for the coming of Christ in the New Testament, it ends with this note on worship. These last few books really focus in on worship. So Haggai shows us a good example of that this morning. And if you look in your bulletin, you'll see uh, that like a good doctor, Haggai has four different diagnoses, four different ailments that he kind of looks at. And then he has four antidotes to help us deal with each one of those. And so um, he really, I guess you could say, gives a worship workshop. He talks about what's going on with their worship and how they can resolve the issues. But before we get into that uh, this morning, I want us to just spend a few minutes now talking about uh, what I would call the background information here in the book of Haggai. So here we are. We're getting close to the end of the minor prophets. Uh, you know, it's called the book of the 12. Uh, there are 12 minor prophets, and we've said this every week. They're not called minor because they're unimportant or less important than the other prophets. They're called minor just because they're smaller. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, they're combined into this thing called the book of the 12. And so here we are uh, getting to the end of the book of the 12. And uh, what do we find here? I want us to just see there's a chronological flow, just the timeline of where these books fit. Okay. So the first minor prophets were written in the 800s BC. Okay. So this is 800 years before Christ was born. Uh, then you have the 700s, the 600s, the 500s, and the 400s. And they're not exactly chronological. You'll see they're a little out of order there. But in general, they kind of follow that flow. Um, uh, Hosea, Amos, Jonah were in the 700s. You get down to the 500s, and that's where we find our prophet today. And that's Haggai, as well as the prophet that we'll look at next week, which is Zechariah. So that's the time flow of what's going on here. But I want to throw something else up on the next screen, and that is some major historical events that happen right in the middle of this. And I think it helps us to understand where our book fits today. All right. So if you look at those dates, I put in one there in 722, the fall of the northern kingdom, the the nation that was called Israel. So God was saying, hey, if y'all don't turn back, I'm going to judge you. I'm going to haul you away. You're going to be hauled away as exiles. Well, in 722, that's what happens to the northern kingdom. And so you think, well, maybe the southern kingdom will look at that and get the message and say, okay, we're going to follow you now, Lord. But no, sure enough, in 605, uh, the Babylonians come in and, and conquer the southern kingdom. Southern kingdom rebels again. And then in 586, uh, the Babylonians just absolutely destroy whatever's left of Jerusalem, whatever's left of the people, haul them away as slaves, exiles, captives, whatever word you want to use. And the story is over. Or not. (laughs) Because you know that throughout these books, God promised restoration. And he said that you're going to be hauled away as exiles. But guess what? In 539, we see the fulfillment of some of these prophecies that were made. And the exiles begin to return to Judah. So the the return happens in 539. And then we see in the end of the 500s. uh, Let's zoom in one more slide here. Um, 539, the exiles begin to return. That's when the book of Ezra is written. By the way, if you want some excellent background information on what's happening in the book of Haggai, read through the book of Ezra. It gives a whole lot more detail as to the situation. But then in in about 520 BC, and you'll see how we know that uh, when we get into the text, is where our book of Haggai falls. So it's about 20 years after the promise of restoration begins to be fulfilled. All right. So Haggai is talking to these people. And he's saying, you've come back to the land. And it's important to realize, though, these people are eyewitnesses. Some of them are older, 
And they actually experienced what happened in 586 with the destruction. Some of them were hauled away, basically kidnapped from their land, and now they're able to come back. So just imagine what it would be like. Here's just a couple of pictures, if you can see these, to have lived through the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, these are not things that we imagine very much in our day and time, right? To have lived through your town, your people, your country being decimated, burned, and being hauled away as slaves. These are the eyewitnesses that Haggai is talking to. People who experienced all this. Here's a picture of the temple, of what they think the temple looked like before it was destroyed. This is the center of Israelite worship. Okay, we're going to talk a lot about the temple today. And so there's this beautiful building that Solomon built, uh, probably in about 950 BC. So about, uh, 300 years before this all happened. Beautiful. Can you imagine what it would have been like to go through this and see that building, the place where you worship God, the place where his presence resides, burned and destroyed, the gold and silver hauled away, and now there's no longer any place to worship the Lord. Can you imagine what that would have felt like? One more picture. There was in place of worship, there was death and destruction, torment. These people were led away into exile as slaves. That's where we find ourselves. It's after all that's happened, about 70 years after all that's happened. It's kind of a new generation of people. Yet, as we see, there's some of the older generation left. And here's where Haggai speaks into this situation. He says, people, you've come back to the land. God tasked you with building the temple. How are y'all doing? The doctor's checking up on the patient. So that's the chronological flow. That's where Haggai fits. But there's one more important thing in the background of this that we need to realize is that there's actually a theological flow through the book of the 12 as well. Uh, Beginning with Hosea. The book of Hosea begins by basically announcing you are a sinful people. Do you remember that book? We started way back in June with this. God says, you are like an unfaithful spouse to me. You've cheated on me. You've run away from me. uh, And yet... I'm not going to turn my back on you. I'm going to pursue you and love you with an unending love. And so there's this announcement of sin. God says, you are a sinful people. We see him saying, if you don't turn back to me, there will be judgment with the purpose of bringing you back. But he says, the ultimate purpose of all of that is restoration. And I promise that I will restore you when you come back to me. And that's exactly where we find ourselves today in the book of Haggai is this picture of restoration. And uh, one more slide here. Again, if you just look at how those uh, those events unfolded, you see the sin in the beginning. You see the announcement of judgment in the middle. And then these last three prophets take place where God is fulfilling his promises. He says, I am restoring you. But guess what? As we find out in Haggai, it doesn't look quite like what the people thought it would. And so that's where we want to start today uh, as we look at this, what I call the four-month worship workshop, okay? So basically what Haggai does is he gives us four messages in two chapters, four things he says, and, and he actually has a time stamp on each one, just like you would have a time stamp on an email or on a, on a text message. It says on the uh, chapter 1, verse 1, in the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, The word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai. And so we have a time stamp on all those. So just again, just so you understand what we're talking about, this entire book takes place in four months. So this first one, if we equate those days to to our modern calendar, that first message would have come on August 29, 520 B.C. 
Okay, so August 29, the second message we're going to see comes on October 17, so about two months later. And then the third and fourth messages both come on the same day. Uh, it's December 18th, 520, um, and they both come on the same day about two months later. So all this happens in the span of about four months. And God says, I want these four messages just kind of getting to give you a workshop on how your worship is. We're going to talk about what ails you, what's wrong with you, and the antidote to those problems. So for each of these messages, we'll see there's an ailment, a problem, a sickness that needs to be addressed. And then Haggai says, here's what the Lord God asks you to do about that. All right. And I'll say this at the beginning as well. The first two get more ink in the book. So we're actually going to spend a little more time on the first two and then less time on the second two. We don't want to miss the second two. Uh, but the main point is driven home on these on these first two. So message number one uh, kind of comes in the form of a dispute. God says, I have a dispute to raise with you people. Uh, and so I want to read uh, verses one through 11. So you can just kind of hear this first message that comes to Haggai. I've already read verse one. Uh, so let's start with verse two. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. And then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Is it a time for yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but you have harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, he does it to put them in a bag with holes in it. Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring your wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their labors. So we look at this first message, and you see a couple things. Before we get to the ailment, what we see going on here is these people are disappointed, right? They came back to the land thinking, yes, God has restored us, and they end up being hungry. There's a shortage. There's poverty. You know, there's a difference between their expectations of what they thought they were going to get and what they actually experience. A difference between what they expect and what they experience. You know, they expected blessing, prosperity, health, wealth, just a restored, wonderful time in the promised land. But they experienced famine and shortage and poverty. So there's this gap between their expectations and their experience. And so we need to pause real quick right here. Has that been true for any of you at any point in your life? Or maybe right now? You expect life to be a certain way. But then you experience it in a way that's totally different than what you think it should be. Might be true in your family. You know, I, I know sometimes when people get married, they expect it to be just perfect, all love and, and no problems. But your experience is, this is hard. Or parenting, you expect great things out of your kids. And sometimes you don't get great things out of your kids. 
maybe with work, you expect this new job to solve all your problems and then you experience all the things that go along with it. Or just life in general. It's not turning out the way you expected it to. There's a gap between what we expect to happen and oftentimes what we experience actually happening. And so when that happens, where do you turn? Where do you turn? So these people just tried harder. They thought, I'm going to turn inward. I'm going to buckle down, pull up my own bootstraps. I'm going to try harder and I'm going to make it happen so that I can get enough food, so I can have enough to drink. I have a safe place to live, a nice place to live. I'm going to make this happen. Well, guess what? Haggai says that your ailment here is wrong priorities. Wrong priorities. You're focusing on the wrong things. You're focusing on the wrong things. And and it's interesting. uh, It says here uh, in verse 2, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. So again, remember the timeline. They came back into the land in 539 B.C. Haggai is writing in 520, about 20 years later, and the temple's still not built. If you go back and read Ezra, that's the express purpose, the specific reason they got sent back to the land is miraculous. God set them free from Persia. King Cyrus gave them all the money, all the supplies they needed to come back and build it, and they got started, and then they stopped. And now they're saying, hey, it's, it's not quite time yet. The time's not right. We need to take care of ourselves first. As soon as we get our affairs in order, then we'll go build the house of the Lord. In other words, they're kind of making excuses. Uh, I read this week, Benjamin Franklin said, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses, who was good at anything else. Think about it. So these people were making excuses instead of making the house of the Lord that God told them to. We talk about what does the word priority mean? Priority really literally means first thing or the one thing. And God says, you have one priority in life. I sent you back to rebuild the temple. And you might say, well, that seems kind of funny. What's the deal with that? Well, one thing we need to understand is during those times, during the Old Testament era, the temple was the center of worship. It's the place where people could meet with God. You know, after the coming of Christ, God lives inside each one of us. He's with us all the time. But for them, they had to go to the temple to make sacrifices. And as long as that wasn't there and wasn't functioning, their their worship was severely inhibited. Okay, They couldn't worship in the way that God asked them to worship. And so their priorities, they were looking at other things as more important than that thing. And it's interesting, the things they were working on, if you look at that list here in this chapter, it wasn't that they were even wrong things or bad things, okay? They were wrong to be the first things. But look at uh, chapter 1, verse 6. It says, you've sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. He who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So food, that's not a bad thing, is it? I mean, it's not wrong to try to feed your family. Clothing, everyone wants clothes on their back, shoes on their feet. Wages, a job to pay for all these things. Those aren't bad things, are they? In fact, those are good things. But if you make them ultimate things, it throws your worship out of whack. When you make important things ultimate things, it throws your worship out of whack. It distracts you from your focus on the Lord. 
Here's a little example of how this looks, I think. Okay, so my family and I, we've, we've started watching this TV show. Some of you who know me well know about this show. It's called Alone. Has anybody in here seen this show? It's a survival TV show, okay? So the show Alone, the premise is they drop 10 people off in the wilderness and they see who can survive the longest, okay? They don't have any communication, no friends. All they have is a satellite phone so that when they're ready to quit, they call in and they get picked up. But you just try to last as long as you can. If you're the one who wins, you get $100,000 or I think on the most recent season, a million dollars. Okay, so they drop you off and you have to survive alone for as long as possible. Um, and so a lot of these people go into right away, they go into making a shelter. They go into gathering food, trying to stockpile food, which then the wolverines and bears come and eat. You know, it's, 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 a, it's an interesting thing. But what if these people were dropped off and they said, okay, I'm here. First thing I'm going to do is carve some wooden animals to play with. You'd be like, uh, might not be the best idea. You're going to get hungry tomorrow. Or they say, uh, let's see, I need somewhere to sleep. So I'm going to make myself a king size bed with three different levels of padding. So I have plenty of room to spread out and sleep. You might say, well, rest is important, but that's not quite the first thing you should be focusing on. Shelter and food to keep yourself alive. What's the first thing they need to survive? What God is telling his people here in Haggai is that you're forgetting the first thing you're supposed to be concerned about. The first thing, the most important thing that you as people are to be concerned about is worship. Your relationship with me, pursuing me, following me, depending on me as the source of your life. Instead of depending on yourselves or trying to make things nice for yourselves. They've forgotten the first thing, and that's relationship with him and the worship that they have. So what is the antidote that Haggai says here? Haggai says twice in this message, he says, consider your ways. Chapter uh, Verse 5, it says, now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. And again in verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Remember, this is not just... Haggai talking here in case you forgot it says thus says the Lord of hosts I want you to consider your ways this is the God of the universe the Lord of hosts is a title that God often uses when he's talking about bringing judgment on his enemies so here his people are saying what's going on this is not how we thought it was going to be and he says the Lord of hosts says to you consider your ways in other words stop and think about what you're doing Stop and reflect on what it is that you're doing. And when he says that word ways, that's an important word uh, in the Old Testament. A lot of different passages talk about what way are you on. Blesses the one, Psalm 1, blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, uh, nor sits in the seat of scornful. It's, it's this idea of what direction, what path are you on? What path are you on? Consider what path you're on here. And God says, you've been focusing on things and trying to take care of yourself and really pursuing all these things that are important. But who are you really trusting? And to what are you giving your effort? God says, I want your life to revolve around worshiping me. I'm the creator. I love you. I've restored you. Don't treat me as a secondary thing on the side. You wouldn't even be here without me. Worship me. Pursue your relationship with me above all else. Pursue your relationship with me above everything else. Consider your ways. 
What is your priority in life? I think this is the message of Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament. Our priority is to know God and to make Him known. That's the one thing God said He wants us to do. Know God and make Him known. Everything else flows out of that. You know, Jesus talked about this very same thing in the New Testament, didn't He? He talked about this a lot of different ways. Uh, in... Um, John 6, with the, with the, after he fed the 5,000. And then he goes into this thing called the bread of life discourse. And he says, I am the bread of life. No one can know the Father unless they're nourished by me. He's trying to tell them the same thing. You think you need physical food, which you do. But guess what? Even more important than physical food is the nourishment you receive by having a relationship with God, with me, through Jesus Christ. Matthew 6:33. I love Matthew 6. It's only a few pages over here from Haggai. This is the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus is talking to people. He says, do not be anxious about anything. About your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? I love it. And then it says uh, a little later, consider the lilies of the field. That same word, consider. Reflect on this a little bit. Who takes care of the flowers? Who takes care of the birds? It's God. You can have a relationship with him. He calls you to give your entire life as an act of worship to him. Consider your ways. Matthew six thirty three. Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Seek first the kingdom of God. Pursue him, and you do that through a life of worship, recognizing who God is, and then pouring out your life as an act of worship to him. So the first step, I think, is if if you think you may be struggling with some wrong priorities, uh, you may be pursuing the wrong things or overvaluing secondary things, I think the first antidote is to consider your ways. Stop and reflect. What way am I going? Am I pursuing things that lead me away from Christ or towards Christ? Are all these things pushing me closer to Christ or are they dragging me a little bit away from Christ? Taking my focus off of him. I think is at the very beginning of this whole COVID thing. I said uh, we really need to as a church, as Christians, focus in on what uh, Hebrews says. Um, let us lay aside the, the, the weight and the, the sins that so easily entangle and look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Keep looking to him. That's what the first step in worship. Consider your ways. What is it that you're focusing on? So that's the first message that Haggai gives. He says, in your worship, you have the wrong priorities. And then his remedy is consider your ways. Stop and reflect on these things. That brings us to the second message. The second message is in chapter 2. I'm going to read this, uh, the first nine verses. So the first one was a little bit more of a dispute, pretty much confrontative. The second message is a little more encouraging, okay? I think the purpose of this one is to give encouragement. And so let's listen to uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. It says this, In the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, 
Verse 3, who is left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when I came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all the nations so that the treasures of all the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Just in case you missed it, it's the Lord of hosts talking there. The almighty, powerful God of the universe. And he makes a promise here. He says, I will be with you. One thing before we jump into this, did you, I didn't read the end of chapter 1. But after Haggai makes this warning, guess what the people do? They commit to work. Haggai may be the most successful prophet to God's people in the Old Testament. Because immediately these people say, okay, we're going to do what you said. We're going to obey the Lord. We're going to work. And then you come to this promise in chapter 2, the second message where God says, because you're going to work, I don't want you to be discouraged. And that's the, the ailment that's addressed here is these people are actually discouraged. They're discouraged. And if you flip over to Ezra chapter 6, um, it says, let me read some of these verses. Ezra 6, um, it talks about how they laid the foundation of the temple. And and when they laid the foundation, guess what happened? It said that some of the older people who remembered the first temple cried out and they wept because they were so upset that the new one didn't look anything like the old one. And the younger people were all excited and they were screaming and shouting. And Ezra tells us that you couldn't tell if the people were crying or celebrating because there was so much noise and confusion. So, So here we get to Haggai and Haggai says, hey... This doesn't look like the first one. And what's different? We know if, if you read through Ezra and if you read through uh, Haggai, there's really not a whole lot of detail about this temple. We just kind of get told the dimensions of it, and that's about it. If you go back to Second Chronicles uh, chapters 3 and 4, we're not going to look there today, but it gives the description of how Solomon built the first temple. Gold, silver, more gold. More silver, more precious gems, more gold, fine gold, pure gold, the best gold. It's just gleaming with gold. There's no mention of any of that in Haggai. And so the people are kind of disheartened. They said, this isn't as good as our first one. Um, And not only that, we also find out from Ezra, they had outside opposition. In other words, the natives, the people around them came and tried to stop them from building the temple. So they were discouraged. They were disappointed. It wasn't going as fast as they wanted it to. They didn't expect the opposition. It's not turning out like they had hoped. So again, we have to ask ourselves, is is anyone in here struggle with discouragement today or disappointment? Things aren't going like you hoped they would. I think when you see this book and you look at the course of human history, you have to realize you're not alone if you feel discouraged. And God makes a wonderful promise to his people then, and he makes that promise to us now. And the antidote for discouragement, I believe, in in Haggai is to embrace 
God's presence. Do you notice how many times he said, I am with you in there? Chapter 2, verse 4. Yet now be strong, be strong all of you and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. Verse 5, at the end it says, my spirit remains in your midst, fear not. If you go back to uh, chapter 1, verse 13, God says, I am with you. There's not very many verses in Haggai, and a bunch of them have that phrase, I am with you. God wants his people to be encouraged and to remember that he is with them. He's with you today. Embrace his presence. You know, uh, it's interesting here. It talks about Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And then he says, be strong for I am with you. There was another Joshua earlier in the Old Testament. In fact, there's a book called Joshua. Uh, As the Israelites came out of Egypt and entered the promised land, God said to Joshua in Joshua 1 verse 9, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified. In other words, do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Then we come to Haggai. God says again, don't be afraid. Fear not. I am with you through this process. God's presence is unchanging for his people. It was true for Joshua at Jericho. It was true for Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest here in Haggai. And it is true for you today if you know him. He is with you and he is for you. So we embrace God's presence. and We also embrace God's plan. Because you have to remember when you're discouraged that God has a bigger picture in mind than we do. And I love verse 9. It says, uh, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. And in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. If you think about the first temple and the second temple, the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Then they built the second temple. Well, guess who shows up about 500 years after this? Jesus Christ himself. God Almighty, the Lord of hosts in human form, actually walks in this temple as a human, fully God and fully human. You couldn't say that about the first temple. But you can say it about the second temple. And these people didn't have any idea that's how it was going to turn out. But God knew as part of his plan that this was the place. He says, in this place, I will give peace. This is the place where God himself will come to rescue his people. He'll be tried there as a criminal and then hauled outside the city to be crucified. But in this place, God will bring peace through Jesus Christ. And so that's a comfort to anyone who's discouraged during that time. And I think you have to recognize the same thing. If you're discouraged now, disappointed about life circumstances, recognize that your life is part of God's plan. And he is bringing life even through difficulty. Just like he did here in this temple that was second rate in the eyes of the people. God says, I'm going to do something special here that you could never imagine. It's all part of my plan. And I need you to be faithful to complete your part of my plan. And I'll be with you as you do that. God asks us to be faithful in our part of his plan. Because we are a part of his plan. And he is with us. So that's the second message. The third message we want to look at, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, is is just a little bit of a story that Haggai tells. And he basically says, 
Uh, it's a lot easier for you to become impure than it is for you to become pure. And he says, if your heart is not in the right place while you're working on this temple, it affects everything else. You've already seen an example of that. All your rest of your work of your life is being affected by this. Impurity spreads easier than purity does. Chapter, uh, let's see. Chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, If someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, It does become unclean. And verse 14, Then Haggai answered and said, So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hand and what they offer there is unclean. In other words, God says, It's about your heart. You might even be going through the right motions, but your heart is not in the right place. And if your heart is defiled, that defiles everything else you work on. It's impure. But if you get your worship right, your heart will be right. And so the antidote he gives here, I believe, the remedy is to desire what God desires. And what is that? It's a pure heart, a relationship with him. God says this is not about checking off a list of things. It's not even about building this building, even though that's important. It's about where your heart is. I want all of your heart seeing me as the most important thing. And then blessing will flow for you. Psalm uh, chapter 16, verses 9 through 11. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Fullness of joy is only found in a relationship with God. And a relationship with God is only possible through the work of Jesus Christ. And so I would invite you, if you haven't done that today, that's the only way you can desire what God desires. He can give you a new heart, a pure heart, and you can walk with him. Then the fourth message, the last few verses here, um, we see one more message here. And there's an ailment that I think all of us can struggle with. And that ailment is a human perspective on history. See, remember for the people in Haggai's time, they were seeing the, the, the Assyrians came and went, the Babylonians came and went, the Persians came and went. Darius uh, was a Mede. Uh, and so the Persians even came and went. And so... All these powers were coming and going. And God says, guess what? I have a greater picture in mind, a bigger plan. And I need you to trust my timing. Let's listen to this last message. Chapter 2, verse 20. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. So this is the second message he gets that day. Speak to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of kingdoms of their nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, every one of them by the sword of his brother. Verse 23, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. You might say, what is that all about? Well, Zerubbabel is a direct descendant of King David. Okay, And if you go to the New Testament and you read uh, the genealogy of Jesus, guess what? 
Zerubbabel is in there. He's one of the ancestors of Jesus, one of the human ancestors of Jesus. And God says, I'm going to use you and this royal line of David, which I promised to use long ago, to restore all things. And that's where our hope is. That's why we worship the one true God. That's why you can trust God's timing, because he always knows what he's working toward. And so when you find yourself struggling with this human perspective on history, being upset about the politics of the day, um, what's going to happen, the uncertainty of what might happen, remember we serve the Lord of hosts, the King of kings. Jesus is his name. And he came and fulfilled this promise, and he will come and fulfill every promise that he's ever made. So when you look at this worship workshop this morning, these kind of four things that Haggai tells the people, these things that we're supposed to focus on, consider your ways, embrace God's presence and his plan, desire what God desires, trusting in God's timing. When you're in life and there's a gap between what you expect and what you experience, where do you turn? If you're one of God's people, he says, turn to me, worship me, trust me. You can count on me. Turn to the living God and worship him. And we'll talk more about that in the days ahead. So if you will, bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this chance to read your word. God, we thank you for this chance to gather together and worship. Father, I pray that you would take these words. Don't let them fall to the ground. But God, I pray that you would use them to build us up as a church and as individuals. God, I pray that we would worship you with a whole heart and give you what you're worth. In your name we pray. Amen. If you will, please stand. I'm going to read a benediction from Romans chapter 16. Romans 16, verse 25. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed through the prophetic writings and has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory and worship forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.